It's my honor and joy to open up the Word of God with you this morning in the book of Mark. Now, you saw the slide, you heard the scripture read out loud. So, this is what we are doing. We will be studying the book of Mark through the fall, but not only through the fall, but all the way through the spring. I know, you ready for this? It will be a fun roller coaster journey, but it will be a great journey for us together. You might ask, why, Jin? Why are we studying the book of Mark? Well, Mark is one of the four Gospels, and it's, in a sense, the foundation of our faith. And Jesus has done so many great things. And Mark, out of all the things that he could have said and written, selected and selected and selected the cream of the crop. Now, recorded in this shortest books of the gospel out of those four gospels. Like when you read the book of John gospel, John, after he goes on and on and on, at the very last chapter, he says, you know what? If I were to write everything Jesus did, this world cannot even contain. It's that many. So out of all the things Mark boils everything down in this short 16 chapter, it is the foundation of our faith. It's the bedrock of Christianity. It's the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, that we will be exploring together this entire year, school year, all the way through the summer, all the way through the end of May that we will be exploring this book together. Lord willing, we'll cover the first half, and in the spring, we'll cover the second half. Since we'll be diving in this book for a while, today, how about the two things? Today, I want to jump into our text momentarily, but also... Let me give you guys a background about what this book is all about so that at least you have some sort of framework of understanding what the gospel of Mark is all about. Let me give you three things, who, why, and how, meaning who wrote it, why did he wrote it, why did he write it, and also how did he write it so that you can kind of understand. We'll give you more background throughout the series. We don't want to take entire time just talking about background, but we want to give you a thorough knowledge as well. First, who wrote the book? It's a guy named John Mark. Now, John Mark wrote this book. exact date of the book is debated, but around the destruction of the temple and around 70, so most likely a little before 55, 65, some say a little after, but that's okay around that time. And John Mark was one of the followers of Jesus, and he was a disputable figure. He was also known one time in AD 46-48, he went along missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. But some reason, Scripture doesn't exactly tell us what happened. John Mark decides to come back quicker. I was like, oh, just kidding, let me go back. And next time, when Paul was about to go to the second missionary journey, Paul wasn't happy about it. Paul was like, Barnabas... I know John Mark is your cousin, but I'm not going to take him with me this time. He quit it before. So Barnabas and Paul was like, Barnabas like, well, but Mark is great. Let's take him with us. Paul's like, nope. So in the end, Paul and Barnabas ended up splitting. And Barnabas took John Mark with him, and Paul goes his own journey as well. But at the end of Paul's life, they have reconciled as well. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says, Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me in my ministry. That there is the second chance for all people. We don't know exactly what happened to John Mark. Mark, he had to come back earlier from the journey. But this guy who came back, 
in the middle of it, ended up writing the gospel, the earliest gospel of all other gospels, and the foundation of our faith. And if I were Mark Shelton today, I'd be, if I were to write a book, I'd be like, the book of Jen. Why I left a little early, defense of Jen. That's what I would have done, because I want my reputation to be clear. But is that what Mark is doing? Not at all. You will see in the gospel of Mark, he has nothing about himself. As if he's saying, you know what? I don't care about my reputation. But what I care about is the reputation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to write about it. Let me get out of the way. And devotes entire pen and ink to write about the legacy, life, death, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And God used it mightily, right? Even 2,000 years later, we remember and we are studying the letter that he has written, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it's a John Mark, one of the followers of Jesus who wrote this book. And then, I mean, why did he write the book? What was the occasion? Now, let me dial back a little bit forward to modernity. Around a 19th century, a lot of German scholars uh, questioned the divinity of Jesus. Jesus wasn't really God. There are a lot of scholars who question that Jesus was just human. Virtually humanity of Jesus, historical Jesus, really even atheist, agnostic, no one really argues about that. Jesus really existed. But the disputable time was that they were like, but what's Jesus really God? And one of the arguments they used against it is like, why did they write this gospel so late? Um, Jesus died and rose again, 80, 30, 33, 36. If Jesus really was who he claimed to be, weren't you supposed to write down right away? But why Mark wait 30 years? Why Matthew and Luke wait 40 years? John, why do you wait 60 years? Oh, I know why. It's because it was actually a legendary tale. Not true. You know how rumors tended to fabricate as you spread, and then it was just compilement of all rumors. That's why you just waited all this time. The answer is nope. That is not true. Initially, when Jesus rose again, there was no need to write down right away. Because how gospel spread at the time wasn't through the writing. It was oral tradition. The gospel spread all over the world. There are eyewitnesses immediately. Like if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that, hey, Jesus rose and he appeared to like 500 people, including Peter. So ask them. They'll tell you that Jesus really rose the dead. And gospel spread orally. But you know, we all die, right, eventually? As those eyewitnesses begin to fade away, people can now make up all their story, right? When Jesus is alive, when there are still people who saw the risen Jesus talk to him, they can say, no, Jesus really lived, died, I saw it, and he rose again. But as they begin to fade away, people are like, can make up all kinds of stories as they want. So Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John begin to write down this gospel record to preserve the legacy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So then even 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, we look at it, and this is the living Savior who lived and died or rose again for our sins. So this is nothing about Mark, but everything about Jesus Christ. He gets out of the way to show us. Mark is so unique why he goes about it that there's rarely any comments about Mark himself that he says about Jesus. What he thinks about Jesus is only mentioned really once. We'll get there in a moment. But it's everything about Jesus to preserve his legacy, what he has done. And how did he write the book, this book, third? As I said it already, this is like a, 
Non-fiction, but it's not a fiction. It's a biography of Jesus Christ, the way he writes it. Now, you could write it this way, church. Hi, my name is John Mark, and let me tell you three reasons why you should believe in Jesus Christ. Reason number one, point number two, point number three. That's what I'll be doing just in a moment, <laughs> uh, if you know me. But John Mark doesn't write like that. He, he just goes on right in. I mean, he just jumps right in. It's an action-packed book, 16 chapters. This is what he did. This is how he lived. This is things that he did. This is how he died. All that, he just jumps right in. There is not even genealogy, all that. Mark just jumps right in from the get-go. What Mark is essentially saying by not saying is that, hey, I can tell you all about Jesus, who he is, but why don't you see for yourself? You see it yourself and see whether he is the true son of God. He's the true king whom he claimed to be, son of man. Now, and he's quite effective about it, the way he does it. For example, Chelton, I could stand here and say, here's a thief statement I'm making of. I can say something like, the good will, always, good will eventually triumph over evil. And in order to do that, you need friends along the way for your journey to defeat the evil. Let me defend three reasons why that's true. And you might think, okay, good will win over evil. Friendship matters along the way. Let me hear what you have to say. But rather than me saying that, what if I tell you, have you seen or read the book, the movie, The Lord of the Ring? Or have you watched the movie Avengers in Endgame, the highest grossing film of all time? Both stories tell you that good will win over evil. And both will tell you that friendship matters along the way to defeat that evil. But if I just defend three reasons, leave why I think good will win against evil. If I just tell you that friendship matters, you'll be like, okay, that's what Jin says. But if you have ever read the Lord of the, Lord of the Ring or watched the movie, or you have seen the Avengers Endgame, it provokes certain emotion in your heart, doesn't it? It captivates your imagination. I'm like, wow. This is legit. And our heart burst with joy and in awe of the journey brings. In a sense, that's what Mark is doing. Rather than him telling about what he thinks about Jesus, he just writes out, come see it for yourself. Will you come throughout the fall and spring and see it for yourself, who Jesus was, who Jesus is to you now, and what he claimed to be? Because if he really is who he claimed to be, and he has every reason to command you to follow him, have you been captivated by that? Have you been captivated by the beauty of all that Jesus has done? I remember one time myself, I don't know what prompted me to do like that. It was about, oh man, it's been a long time, 20 years ago, I think about freshman year in college. I don't know what prompted me that Friday evening, I remember particularly, but the Friday evening, I don't know why, I just wanted to really read through the Bible as much as I can, read through the gospel in specific. Maybe I went to a Bible college, so maybe it was an assignment. I can't remember. Don't give me too much credit. I don't normally do that. So that Friday evening, you know, all my friends went hang out, and I went to the library, locked myself in from like, I usually journal special events in my life, but somehow, I don't have a journal entry on this event. But I locked myself in the library, I think from 4 p.m. to 10 p.m. Sat down, read through the gospel account as best as I can. I think I read through Mark, John, and maybe one more gospel. And in the six hours, 
I mean, I believed in Jesus. I always have, since my youth age. But the undeniability of the reality of Jesus kind of hit my heart to a brand new degree. I felt like my belief in him went a couple floors deeper. And as the library is closing at 10 p.m., I'm walking a 10-minute walk back to the dorm. And I, when I'm in deep thought, maybe some of you have seen me, I tend to walk really slow and just think and pray. The 10-minute walk became 25 minutes, and I keep saying, it's real. It's just so real. I was so awestruck by this reality of Jesus that it seems like all the obsessions I had in this world, so many things that I worried about, my school grade, I have to do this, my major, da-da-da-da-da. It just, in a sense, dissipated in a reality because if Jesus is really real, then I'll be okay. It's as if in the Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamzu and our journey, and the circumstance is terrible, and then one day he looks at the beautiful star at night, and the beauty of the star smote his heart, and soon he forgot all his trouble, and he fell untroubled sleep. I experienced it that day as I was walking back from library to dorm. Jesus is real, and it's okay. I got plenty of worries, but I have Jesus, and I'll be okay. I pray that will hit your heart as you go along. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, all who have gathered here at Chelton in this fall and spring as you dive in, I pray that you experience that. See it, come and taste for yourself. And I pray that you will begin to reorient your lives. Those of you who are still exploring Jesus Christ, will you come back? Will you come and hear about Jesus continue to? As I said, even atheist, agnostic, no one denies historical Jesus, really, virtually. Any respectable scholars will admit that Jesus existed. The question is then, was Jesus really God? And I ask that you see it for yourself. And I pray that you be open-minded as you walk through this book of Mark journey and see what God has stored for you. Ah, having said all that, shall we dive in? That was a long intro. Three things that we'll talk about. That's the background of the book of Mark. First, we'll explore in this text, who is Jesus? We'll talk about that at the very get-go. And second, we'll talk about why did he come? What was his message of Jesus Christ? And third, and what shall our response supposed to be to his message? I mean, how do we get there? How do you respond to what he commands us? He commands everything of us. So third, our response, how, how we get there. So first, let's go. Who is Jesus? Verse 1. Now, I said it at the very beginning. Mark doesn't really say anything about even his thought of Jesus throughout the book. This is really the only time of his own commentary about what he thinks about Jesus. After that, he just basically comments, transition, comments about things that Jesus has done. But this is what Mark writes about Jesus. Jesus, Mark says in 1.1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That's how Mark introduced who Jesus is. Jesus the Messiah, Greek word Christus, Jesus Christ. It means Jesus, the anointed king. Jesus is the same name like Yeshua, Joshua in Old Testament. Yet here, as Mark introduced the identity of Jesus. He introduced him as a Christ, Christus, the anointed king who has come. And then as he goes about, he introduced what this king is all about, verse 2 and through. He borrows this from Isaiah and Malachi, saying, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. 
a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight path for him. The figure of speech here, the prepare the way of the Lord, make straight path for him, it refers to the custom of an officer coming, officer comes before the monarch for their royal journey to prepare their path. So this refers, hey, the king is coming, prepare the way. Roll out the red carpet or whatever looks like to prepare the way. It's the custom of ascending an officer before a monarch who was to make a royal journey. So here, Mark does not shy away from the beginning, introducing Jesus as the ultimate king of all kings who has come to this world, King Jesus. And so here, king comes. Now, though, when we talk about king, we don't have proper understanding of what king is. Neither we did, nor what those people hearing about the word king thought. was very different than what Mark meant. Like our understanding of king, I mean, this past week in the UK, as many of you know, Queen Elizabeth II, monarchy is the oldest form of government in UK, and Queen Elizabeth II passed at the age of 96, and Charles III rose to the throne and assumed the duty. And this monarch and UK form of king, they are less of a head of nation, functioning head of nation. That's more a prime minister's job. But they are, in a sense, like a symbol of UK's unity and pride, their ideal. It's a, fun, it's a symbolic king who is there to bring peace and unity for the nation. But this king of UK is quite different then the king, that these people who are waiting for Messiah were expecting king. They weren't expecting symbolic king, but they were hoping for a functional king, a militant king, who will come and deliver them from their oppression of Roman. So it's Mark writing about the symbolic king or the functioning king. Neither. Mark is not writing about symbolic king nor functioning king, or militant king, but he is going to introduce us a suffering king. And suffering king will come. And that identity of Jesus will become more and more clear as you go about. He will, uh, on, for our sin, on our behalf, king himself will go to the cross for our sin. It's a fascinating story that Mark is doing. So first, who is Jesus? He's the suffering king who has come to this world. Second, why did he come? What was his message? When you look at verse 1 and also verse 14, here's the million-dollar word that will constantly go back. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. After John was put in prison, verse 14, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Here, the foundation concept of what Mark is saying, the core message of this suffering king was the good news. It's the word euangelion, came from the word, Greek word angelos, which means a messenger who brings a good news. And when we hear the news, for if you have been attending church since your birth, you've been around the block for a while, I know good news, Jesus died for my sin, great. If you have not been around the church block, what is good news? Is it like daily briefing I see on a TV? This good news, it's far more than that. The good news that Mark is the very message. It's not necessarily daily debrief. 
This used euangelion has been used for a seismic event, the history-altering news, life-changing news that will change the course of your life. For example, I mean, today we celebrate 21st anniversary of 9-11. When that happened 21st years ago, that was a seismic news, right? That altered the history. But, but this news that Mark is proclaiming is even more seismic, more magnitude. It's complete history-changing news that he's proclaiming. So what is this good news? What is this all about? The origin of this word really is when the Greeks were in their nation, often Persian kingdom would come and attack them. So you got to send the military to the northern border to defend against the invasion of enemies. You, you are in the city. You are like, every day you're waiting. Have you triumphed? Or are they invaded us? If they invaded us, what? Now we are in slavery. We're doomed. We'll die next day because our border has been breached. But if we are victorious, we got nothing to fear. We are victorious. And then they would often send a messenger during the battle to either give them the reassurance or the warning. Reassurance, we'll be all right. Or warning, hey, this is not looking good. But the most famous account of this is the Battle of Marathon, perhaps. After they have been victorious, this guy runs and runs and runs and runs to declare the message, we have triumphed in the Battle of Marathon. And then he exhausted and died himself after exhaustion of running. Thus became Marathon. That's how they came about that. So this good news that Jesus came to bring, it's nothing that we have done. Only thing that we bring that we are in the people in the city. We are like... Are we going to be okay or are we going to be a slave? But the good news has come that we have triumphed. I can sleep peacefully at night knowing that my life is secure. Somebody has triumphed on our behalf and our lives be all right. That's what gospel is all about. That somebody else fought for your behalf and as a result of his victorious, now we are safe. That's in a sense... The reality of the gospel is what Jesus came to bring. But in our society, I mean, in church, we get it. But we live in such a meritocracy society that tells you, you get what you get. Whether it be karma, you work hard, you will get it. If you don't work hard, you won't get it. This is quite countercultural, the news of the gospel, because it's nothing we bring to the table, but all that has been done for us. Those like just like those citizens who are caught in fear. What is John, John, Mark, John, Mark, what is Mark trying to show through there? What is Jesus trying to show us? Is that you can never save yourself on your own merit. This was not only counterculture to us, but even to them as well, that they cannot cleanse themselves. They cannot save themselves. What do I mean by that? Look, verse 4 and 5. What happens here? It's the account of baptism. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, this was very new to all who have gathered them. Why is it new? Well, baptism, we know we are Baptists. I know what baptism is all about. I know what baptism is. To them, it was a very new thing. Why is that new thing? Now, if you ever want to approach God, you had to cleanse yourself. 
uh, for Jews. There's, if you ever go to Israel, there's this thing called Qumran site. There's a little bathtub that they would cleanse themselves. Jews, they would have to wash their hands. And for Gentiles, they have to dunk themselves. There's a bunch of tradition that how you are supposed to wash themselves in order to be worthy to approach God. What does it teach you? First, God is holy. But what does that subconsciously also teach you in your mind? Oh, as long as I wash myself, as long as I'm cleansed, then I'm worthy to approach God. I can cleanse myself. As long as I wash myself, just like the temple priest did, uh, they can, when they are declared ceremonially unclean, they would isolate themselves, clean themselves so that they can be worthy to do their duties. But subconsciously in their mind, as long as I wash myself, I can approach God. I am worthy. But what the baptism of John teaches you, doesn't matter who you are. Whether you're rich, poor, Jews, or Gentile, you cannot wash yourself to approach God. There's somebody else who has to wash away your sins and guilt once for good. You need to be washed by the blood of the King, suffering King, our Lord and Savior, who will come and pave the way. It's not your worthiness. God, I've washed myself. Now I'm good enough to approach you. No, the baptism of shows us, hey, be baptized. Here is the way. You cannot cleanse yourself. Now I baptize you in the water. But the one who is going to come, he's going to baptize you with his blood. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And now you're really worthy to have access before the Lord. Not because how much you have washed yourself, but because all that God has done. Do you see how kind of paradigm shifting that would be for these people who are listening? Even to me, so God, there's nothing I can do to approach you but to see all the reason why I can be worthy to approach God is all because I've been washed by the blood of Jesus. That's what gospel is all about, that you cannot wash yourself. Don't you want to approach God, Shelton? Jin, don't you know I've loved my neighbor well? You know how I am recognized at my work field? I'm a great wife, great husband. I'm a good son and daughter. No. What makes you worthy to be able to approach God, have a relationship with him, is that you are washed by the blood of Jesus. And this baptism of John shows the paves the way for that. Now, having said all that, who is Jesus? He's the suffering king that Mark is going to continue to introduce to us. His message is to repent and believe this good news. And that will change. It's repent and believing. It's turn around from way of life. Turn around from your self-reliance. Turn around from DIY. Is that do it yourself? You cannot DIY for salvation. Somebody else has to wash you. And our suffering king has come to wash you. Now, what's our response supposed to be to our suffering king who come to wash us? Verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Do you see a sense of nowness? Sense of immediately in the Jesus approach? Wait, does it? Time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Verse 18, at once they left their nets and followed him immediately. It's as if Jesus, it's, Jesus is saying, follow me now. Follow me immediately. Follow me. Abandon all things. I am greater than all other things. There's a sense of now, urgency. Today is the day of your salvation. 
Today is the day to come before the Lord. Now is the best time. Don't wait for tomorrow. The response of disciples, 1820, at once they left their net, which means they left their livelihood and followed him. Verse 19, when he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Jebedee, his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Verse 20, without delay, right now, immediately, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Disciples left everything. Now, does it mean that, Jin, if I want to follow Jesus, I have to quit my job? I have to move out of my family? Is that what Jesus is saying? No. What Jesus is saying comparatively, shift your priority. Before you are somebody, before you are CEO, you are a child of God, follower of Christ. Before you are son of Jevity, son of somebody, you are now child of God. That's your primary functioning identity. That comes before anything else comparatively. You love him so much. He's such a priority that all the other sins, as if you hate them, all the other sins like you have abandoned them because you have such clear priority. You might say, wow, that's really narcissistic, Jesus. Who are you to say that, abandon everything, I am the king, follow me? Well, if the gospel is something that you fought the battle and won, then you can say that to Jesus because you have, it's your contract. Jesus, this is how I washed myself to approach you, so I'm only going to offer this much. But if Jesus is the one who has to wash you, if Jesus is the one who is delivering you from sin, then he has a right to ask everything of you. And he's doing that, follow me. And you might say, oh, that's such a limitation. No, it's not. It's a liberation. Uh, what I mean by that, have you been in a situation, Shelton, where you felt like one day you're so obsessed about this thing, this is all you can think about. This is terrible, my family, my work, uh, family conflict. Next few months later, you're obsessed about something else. Next later, you're obsessed about something else. You go about one obsession, another obsession, to another obsession. Oftentimes, that's my life, unfortunately. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. But when I do that, do you remember the story I told you at the library? When I am so captivated by the beauty of Jesus, all this obsession seems like such a minor deal. But when I'm not truly following him, with the way that he commands me, I get so obsessed about every little detail that robs all the peace within. You know what's one great diagnostic tool, whether you're really following him as he meant to ask you to be? Ask yourself, do you like the person you are becoming today? We really have a sobering examination. No, I did not say, do you like how much money you are making today? I did not say, is today your dream has come true finally? I did not say, today has your circumstance gone much better. Or I did not say, just fill the blank. But I did say, do you like the person you are becoming? That you used to be, what is your, my precious that you're so obsessed about today that hinders you from truly following Jesus? Is it this, whether it be your livelihood, just like disciple left their nets, but you are just so holding on to my precious, I can't let it go. What is that? Those who have obsessive personality of one after one, do you like the person you are becoming? That because you're following Jesus, because you have committed it to the ultimate priority of following Jesus, now you have moderation in all things. You're like, you know what? I got plenty of words, but it's okay. Our suffering king has come, and he has saved me, 
And he said, my future will be okay. For those of you who are caught in the fear of uncertainties in your life, is there grace that bubbles within you? Even in the middle of fear and uncertainty, there's peace that is unexplainable. For those, when you get so obsessed about things, you explode. Is there this bubbling joy? Because even in the midst of difficulty, you know our king has come. It's going to be okay. You think following Jesus is limitation. Jin, if I follow Jesus, I have to abandon all things. That's terrible. No, it's not. True liberation comes from limitation. When you limit yourself, commit yourself to Jesus, make himself as priority in your life, all the other things will fall in the right order. Dysfunction and chaos take place because you disorder that. How are we going to respond to that Jesus command to follow him fully? What is the one that hinders you from that? Now, having said all that, the question is then, Jen, I mean, what do I need to do today? Answer shows here, lastly, go to the wilderness. Yeah. The word wilderness in this chapter 20 verse is used four times. Verse 3 and 4 and also 12 and 13. Let's look at it briefly what that means. Verse 4, so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching the, preaching the baptism of repentance. And once the Spirit sent him, now referring to Jesus, out to the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. This wilderness is, when we hear the wilderness in North American context, we think of babbling brook, jungle. This is more like a desert where nothing grows, where everything dies. And this symbolized actually throughout the Old Testament, place to meet God. Moses met God in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, as it says here. Israel met God. God fed them in the wilderness with a daily manna. Wilderness is where you cannot survive apart from Jesus. Wilderness is one single best place for you to realize that all this long, all you have needed is Jesus. When really all you have is Jesus, when you got nothing left, you begin to realize that I'm okay, I have Jesus. But often we are allergic to silence, aren't we? Literally or figuratively. I had a Canadian-Australian roommate in my seminary years, and he had a shirt that says allergic to silence. And because he loved music, he's always get-go was playing music. But during Lent, he decided to give up music to see what bubbles up. He said he was going long drive for journey, and he desperately wanted to play music to distract himself, but he gave that up, so he had to be silent, and also all kinds of anger bubbles up inside his heart. There's no longer coping mechanism. When everything, when the noise was all canceled out, he realized that I need to work on this. What is the noise within you, literally and figuratively? What is the noise of your heart that today so you're obsessed about? Go to the wilderness where everything is stripped away. That's where you meet God. Perhaps you are there today. What's our hope in the wilderness that John the Baptist goes through, Jesus goes through? Our hope in the wilderness, lastly, is that when all you have is Jesus, yes, you have a Jesus who went to the ultimate wilderness for you. Wilderness is the place where nothing grows. All you see is thorn, bushes, loneliness, abandonment. Few years later, Mark will show us in the end, Jesus will go to ultimate wilderness. Yes, he'll be crowned with thorns. 
Yes, he'll be cosmically alone at the cross. Yes, he has been ultimately abandoned where everything has been stripped away in the ultimate wilderness. Jesus went to the cross for you and I to wash us with the blood of Jesus, to baptize us to Holy Spirit. And through his death, now we have hope. Go to the wilderness, meet Jesus. That's the way to follow him. You think, Jin, I have to give up everything. It's worth it. When Jesus is your everything, who went ultimate wilderness for you, he went down to the ultimate desert that is burning. He descended to hell for you and I, for he loved us so much. Our suffering king willingly entered this ultimate wilderness for you and I, our sin, and he has every reason to command us to follow him. So, Shelton, friends, will you follow him this fall and spring as you go along your journey? Meet God in the wilderness, and he'll be right there with you. Let me pray for us. God, I want to be smitten once again by the undeniable reality and scandalous beauty of what you have done on the cross. God, Mark will show us way throughout the journey as we go along the book of Mark throughout the fall and spring. But Lord, I want to pause today, right now, where we are. Are we truly following you? What's the noise in our lives that hinders us from truly following you, O oh Lord? And those who encountered you left everything to follow you. God, we acknowledge that it's hard. There are so many things that I desperately want to hold on. So, Lord, today, will you reorder my priority, reorder my love, so that I can really love you and follow you as you have commanded me? Oh, our suffering king, thank you for coming to save us. I pray that you continue to save us today from our obsession. We want to be liberated. We want to commit ourselves to you. Yet, oh, Lord, we are feeble and we wander so, oh God, bring us home. Help us, to find, help us to find a true joy and satisfaction in you, our King Jesus. In your precious name we pray, amen.